Uh, Romans 12 is really uh, helpful, I think, because it says don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that as we're continuing to read the Bible, we're renewing our minds and we're transforming. So church isn't sedentary. It's actually in its very nature dynamic. And so as culture changes, I don't fear that cultural change because we have an ongoing conversation about faith within our local churches, about how we express our faith in a changing culture. Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast. And as always, I'm excited to record a podcast and always excited to record a podcast with these two lovely gentlemen sitting right next to me. Uh, Tim, how are you? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you, Joel. Excellent. Same jumper as last week. Same jumper. Yep. Very interesting. Yes. <laughs> I always, I'm like the fashion critic now, aren't I? Like, That's right. You've got to comment on I'm it. always looking for something to talk about just to be, you know, a bit oh. of, bit of uh, lighthearted banter. So it always <laughs> just ends up me criticizing your clothing choices. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yes, Tim. Sorry, you're going well, are you? Uh, yeah, well, not anymore. <laughs> but I was fine. Okay, great. And Tim, uh, not your Tim. You're not Tim. You're Stu. Sorry, <laughs> Stu. How are you? I'm good. That's good. That's a different jump than last week. <laughs> it is. Yes. <laughs> well, let's crack on, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for putting up with my uh, criticisms. Um, but uh, today we're going to talk about innovation. So that's something that uh, the book that we've been looking at, uh, Breakout Churches, uh, they talk about that's a very important thing to have as you continue your momentum, trying to build up momentum in the church. But I thought it's worth talking about uh, what is the word, if I say the word innovation to you guys, what, what do you first think of? Tim, why don't you go first? Immediately, um, I'm th- I was thinking of, I listened to a podcast this week on uh, the innovations in coffee. So that was the <laughs> thing that came immediately to my mind. Right. Um, and just uh, how, we, how did we get to where we are today in terms of coffee and um, yeah, the yeah, original bean and through to uh, sort of Turkey and that kind of Middle Eastern area where they have the really thick sludgy coffee. Um, and then when it moves into Europe and being able to filter it and and then all the way through to getting coffee breaks. Um, and that uh, was a fun little story about a tie. I think it was a guy who made neckties. Um, and he had, um, in his factory, he had a lot of his workforce um, go and serve in the Second World War. And he was employing these other um, people who would tire easily. Um, and he found that uh, if you gave them breaks, and providing them with coffee that they'd come back really invigorated. Um, (laughs) So he he instituted morning and afternoon coffee breaks um, and said, you you must take a break and there's plenty of coffee. Uh, And they came back and they were- Have a stimulant. They they had a stimulant and they were buzzing and they were really productive. And so, and that um, has where um, instituting coffee breaks into uh, a lot of workplaces kind of originated from. Mm. Um, So yeah, this piece like that. So that when you say innovation, that was at the mm. forefront of my mind because it was does, fresh. Does the innovation stretch to Australia, which I feel is the biggest coffee snob country in the world? Well, it was it was an American-based <laughs> podcast, and I don't think they gave us much time of day. Oh, so, um, right. no, but I do think that, yeah, we have a really strong coffee culture, which is very different to um, certainly American mm. coffee. Um, and I've only spent a very small amount of time in America, but found that it was very hard to find a, a coffee place that was anywhere near what we would 
I think it was normal. Yes, I was um, recent, uh, recently in America and my wife was rather upset that it took a long time to find a coffee. And she, But she did like going to Starbucks and getting an iced coffee. Right, And we yes. did have to do a drive through because she definitely wanted to use the new Starbucks that was close to where we were staying right. and use the drive through Starbucks, which okay. is quite a good experience, but... Uh, that's what, a sign what, of is it making anything different about that drive-thru no, experience than just, any other drive-thru? Well, they actually have, um, when we've been in America before, because my dad lives there, um, they have drive-thru banks. Right. Uh, just in case you need to drop off your cash without getting out of the car. <laughs> that's, that's convenient for robbers, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Hi, I've come to rob you. Please just, yes, you please know, just spend pass some money. That, uh, money bag through the window. Yeah, Thank that's you. all right. Um, but it was just, I think it was just the novelty of the situation. Right. Was never been through a Starbucks uh, drive-through before. We have to do it before we go home. Okay, so we did yeah. that and got her a nice coffee, and she was happy. So the only times I've ever had Starbucks, I've regretted it. Yeah, I'm not very picky with coffee, but the often if there's a cafe that is on par with what I can make at home, I don't bother paying for it because mm. that's just a waste of money. Mm. Um, but I enjoy paying for a nice coffee. But there's very few coffees that I was like, oh no, I wouldn't have that again. My two experiences with Starbucks were both that. I was like, yeah, no, this is, I would not have that again. Yes, my wife didn't rate the Starbucks coffee, but she was able to, because... You could drive through. Yeah, because there was a drive through, we had to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of drive throughs that's a type of innovation, Stu. Do you have anything that that comes to mind with innovation as well? Or or first of all, what would you like a drive through in church? (laughs) (laughs) I think there are drive through churches I've read about in the past. I haven't seen them. I think people have tried it. Um, Innovation? Mm. Uh, it's um, the first thing that comes to my mind is Talking Heads from the late 1970s. Okay. So an innovation in punk music. So before Talking Heads, there was the Ramones. You might have heard of them from New York. They used to play in a, uh, a venue called CBGB's and there was another few artists that used to play there too, people like Patti Smith. And then the Talking Heads came along and what was an innovation with the Talking Heads is they just... Uh, well, the Ramones used to wear leather and black jeans and they looked very punk, but the Ramones didn't have a lot of money and they just wore what their parents had sent them, some clothes. Um, when they were at uni, the parents sent them clothes because <laughs> they didn't have any money to buy clothes. So they got up on stage wearing pastels um, and it was quite funny because they were punks, and, but the whole idea of punk music was not just about looking um, hardcore, it was actually about doing whatever you want. So they took that to another level by wearing... Clothes you could buy in Kmart on stage. <laughs> I didn't know they had that Kmart was, in America, well, did they? I don't think they have Kmart, but that, whatever the equivalent is, probably yeah. Walmart. Walmart, something like that. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the thing about innovation is it's just like it happens in so many things that we may, need, may not even notice it. Like music, for example, is yeah. a, big, a big one. I think of even like there's in sporting, like I always make a sporting analogy, apologies for that, but there's always like something works for a while and then another team works out what this successful Mm. team is doing and then has to completely change and innovate again. Um, The other thing I was thinking of in terms of innovation was just the the motor car. (laughs) (laughs) There's been one or two innovations with the motor car. Exactly. And uh, I'm a big fan of cars. um, But as I said, I was over in the US quite recently and my father now lives in California. And if you live in California, you cannot do anything unless you own a car. You cannot move anywhere else unless you own a car. And um, consequently, they have a huge amount of wide freeways that you can move around. And then even then, the traffic gets terrible around, um, especially Los Angeles. But it was interesting, like, just trying to figure out one of the reasons why that was the case. Whereas if you look at somewhere like New York, it's got a really 
efficient subway and, and those kind of things. But I, I, I made the assumption that as after the 50s, there was this huge boom across to the west coast of America. The motor car um, became a thing that uh, ordinary people could actually purchase and move to the suburbs. So there's this huge urban sprawl in LA. It's a, this gigantic sprawling city. Um, and then as a consequence, I don't think they felt that they needed to invest in much public infrastructure. <laughs> but then you look at it and it's this... I felt that it was like, oh, I just don't feel like I can be almost part of the community traveling around because I'm just going to go to my own personal car and drive to the place that I need to be. So it was interesting, maybe an unintended consequence of how they decided to build LA and expand LA mm. and it just ended up happening that way. So, mm. I mean, that's something to think about as well, I suppose, with church and uh, when we're talking about innovation today. So, And that was going to be my opening question for you guys. I always like to get the reaction question for you. But in church context, do you think that innovation could be a trap or a triumph? Mm. Um, yeah, I, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but there's a, a dual nature to the gospel and being Christian is that the gospel never changes. So the gospel is always the same. Whatever culture, uh, time period, etc., that you're in, language, um, the, the message of Jesus uh, is above that and is always true. Um, but we are also always enculturated people. Um, and so therefore, because culture changes, language changes, different countries have different expressions of different things, uh, you're always trying to work out how do you tell the never-changing story in an ever-changing world. And so as you, you work through that, there needs to be um, innovation in the way that you present the never-changing story. So in terms of being a trap, uh, I suppose one of the traps might be that you um, change the message itself to try and fit the culture uh, rather than just try and change the way in which you're expressing it so that it's understandable to the culture, which is a different thing. Um, but if that is done well um, because of who God is, who Jesus is, um, because of the message of the gospel, it can be done successfully. And then that's what we have seen over 2,000 years, that it's truly a global um, religion um, of many different tongues um, and nations and people groups that have accepted um, because uh, when we get it right, uh, we can communicate the true gospel in a way that um, yeah, communicates clearly to different people at different times, but nevertheless doesn't change. Mm. Chap or triumphs, Stu? One of the great things about the New Testament is it's not prescriptive on how we are to implement uh, our ecclesiology. And so we are given fantastic principles about um, how we are to act as the church. Um, there's lots of metaphors in the New Testament to help us to think that through. Uh, the church is a body. The church is like a building being built together by Christ with, with Christ as the capstone. Um, with the body, Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, we're a family with God as our heavenly father. So there's all these great metaphors and there is this uh, flexibility for the church to express those realities in different places in different ways. So as Tim was saying, one of the terrific things about the church is the gospel has been shared right across the world and where you go, wherever you go into different cultures, there's different cultural representations of the gospel without changing it. Uh, people can express their faith in different ways. So I think that the zeitgeist in Australia at the moment is that 
very strongly Christianity is tied to a colonial uh, Anglo past. And so a lot of the media sort of focus in on Christianity as if it's a, a white religion, but it actually is a Middle Eastern um, religion that has actually expanded right across the whole world. And I think uh, you, you, you don't have to go far in where we live in Sydney to see lots of different representations from different cultural backgrounds of Christianity. And I think that's really exciting. Uh, Christianity is truly a worldwide religion. So I think that uh, there's a lot of innovation that's gone on over the centuries. And I think what's challenging about our era is uh, past generations haven't had to think about how to innovate the gospel in uh, the local context as much as we've had to in in uh, just recent times in the last you know three or four decades particularly we've seen our own culture change quite dramatically the values of our culture change quite dramatically and I'm really confident that we'll be able to hold on to the true gospel message and innovate and change and, and you know that's what the whole shock absorber is about really mm. yeah exactly I mean isn't it interesting that I wonder if there are uh, as many things in the world that uh, we're talking about innovation and how things have to adapt and change but the message and the gospel doesn't change and that actually frees us up to be able to be adapting in the right in the way that we think that can help and and partner with jesus in, in terms of his his church mm. um the next thing i was going to ask you though before we get into the meat of the episode i did have something for you guys as apropos of last, um, here's your meat tray. Oh, for, oh the for meat last, tray for yeah, last yeah. week. Yeah, so so the viewers. Uh, yeah, it's, um, that's looking super appetising, Joe. <laughs> it really How is. How long has that yeah. sat in your unrefrigerated bag for? Uh, not very long. I only okay. just bought it this morning. Oh, okay. um, it, it was a quick sale. It's a quick sale. <laughs> Six thirty nine quick sale. <laughs> Barbecue, smoky beef burgers. Yeah, infused with hickory smoke. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. Like, congratulations on winning your um, very special your meat tray there. Uh, Thank you. Best before today. So that's right. Yeah. As cook I, them up for lunch. Well, there's the thing. I thought about getting the the lamb cutlets that um, Stu requested, but they weren't on sale, so I couldn't, I couldn't get those. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for remembering last episode. No, you're welcome, you smoky hickory barbecue boys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so talking about, <laughs> we'll just move on from that. Um, uh, I thought that would be funnier than it actually was. I think it was good. <laughs> bit of contest. If you live outside of Australia, it's quite a, a fun thing to get a meat tray uh, as a prize at local RSLs and pubs in Australia. So, I feel like I might heat one of that, those up for lunch. We'll see okay. how they go. Yeah, okay. We'll yeah. give it a crack. Cool. Uh, so uh, we, as we always kind of in this season of Momentum in Ministry, we uh, look at a book called Breakout Churches and help engage, helps us engage with how we can look at building momentum in our ministries. Um, and it, Tom Rayner, in this uh, chapter that in particular about innovation, comes up with a couple of models or in, in maybe better put a spectrum of how you can look at um, innovation and how churches respond to what they could be doing when if they are innovating and changing. And so there's... There's a tale of two churches that he starts with, and I thought of both um, bringing that out. So there's one side of the spectrum is traditionalist slash, slash resistor, and then the other side is the innovator embracer side. And his thesis is that uh, the breakout churches, which he describes as the ones that grew, f- were continuing to maintain growth and had to go through a lot of things but continue to maintain growth, actually belong in the middle of the spectrum. 
But here's a tale of two churches we were on the on either side of the spectrum. So one church was established in 1955 and it only had two pastors in exist in its existence. Pastors? Yeah, only two pastors. Yeah. Um, so by 1985, the attendance was 550. By 1990, it had gone up to 750. There was a steady growth, but it was beginning to reach a capacity for the, for the area that it was actually... On and so they began to explore a relocation. They didn't. They but they were met, that was met with a lot of resistance within the congregation. Uh, the pastor even brought in a consultant to try and help change minds, but that backfired and caused a, a big verbal stoush between the majority of who were resistant to it and the more accommodating members to thinking that yeah maybe we could move. And so as a result, the church didn't relocate, but the pastor also became really discouraged because he was trying to say, hey, if we want to keep growing, we actually need a, a larger facility somewhere. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, we've got a church that said there was plenty of room to grow physically and they had a new pastor that came in in 1993 who immediately, he just made a whole lot of dramatic changes, especially in the music uh, ministry. And so, <laughs> quoting the book, it said, uproar ensued. Um, and then he also returned from a conference with a new leadership structure that he'd heard about and wanted to implement it without, and didn't, and decided to implement it without any consultation from the leaders or the members, even when the bylaws of the church prohibited him from doing so. <laughs> he went to a leadership conference, <laughs> came back and decided to implement a new leadership strategy without talking to the leaders. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And then as... And as it continued, the pastor, um, he just was continually infatuated with the latest fads and trends of leaders and we could do this, we could do that, um, which a, a number of the congregation said it really burnt them out. They were, didn't feel very stable. So in the two ends of the spectrum, one is stuck in tradition while the other is enamoured with seemingly innovative approaches. And as I said, Rainer makes the point that uh, the breakout churches that he observed did not blindly embrace innovation to cause growth, but they're also quick to implement or use a new approach uh, once it was committed to. And he said that it's a, a better way to look at innovation is an accelerator of growth and to help growth, not the catalyst for growth. So my question is, after going through a lot of that, is what do you think about churches that where they might sit on the spectrum and what has been your ex in your experience when innovation has worked and innovation hasn't worked? Yeah, I think sometimes if people see a practice that's working in another context and they seek to copy that practice without thinking through the underlying principles of that practice, I, I think that's when innovation can fall over. So when you think through the theology and a strategy of a practice and you seek to understand and implement the principles of the practice, I think that's where innovation is more likely to succeed. Mm. And I mean, it's, a, it's an ongoing message that Rainer continually talks about is that if you just see innovation as a way to change things in the church, that's probably going to end up upsetting mm. a lot of people mm. and maybe not getting the results that you perhaps desired in the first place. Whereas, as you're saying, it's important to go back to the beginning uh, we talk about in it's our revival church like with our theology strategy and practice yeah. is that jesus mm. changes everything we share the love, truth of love of jesus to everyone everywhere is our strategy and then that informs all of our practice is that right yeah, that's right yeah and and you've got to think too that there's a bell curve there's some people who really like change and some people who really don't like change mm. and most people are in the middle mm. and so in order to bring people with you i think it's good to have a conversation about change before you actually implement change 
Uh, it's good to have formal and informal uh, conversational spaces. So uh, I think it's great when churches have AGMs and they get a chance to review and plan for the future. Another thing that works well, I think, in churches is having an annual planning day where people can review and plan for the future. And the rhythm of that can actually give people confidence that there's a scaffolding around change, that people don't feel like it's just, um, you know, the pastor's going to get up and share some new idea from a book that they've just read from America and say, hey, that this application really seems to flow out of Romans, whatever, and we should really try and do this. That can be a little off-putting uh, if, a, if a minister just gets up in council in the parish council or with the elders and just says let's go and move to this model i think sometimes uh, that can look to the congregation like the pastor's got on a white horse and ridden off in front of the mm. the the army so to speak without bringing everyone together and walking together with it so i think i think it is good to to listen but then uh, the other side of it is um conflicting priorities can sometimes bog down innovation when you do have conversations so there, there needs to be a bit of a balance between helping people to see a, a biblical inter, uh, a biblical sorry a biblical application to um to help us to work out how to change so people can see that it's biblical and then strategically that it's working within the context of where we're at and what i like about the shock absorber is getting the different parties to come together to share in the consultation process so that uh, it, it becomes less these are all these config, conflicting needs of the church and how do we balance it but more how do we move from what we are now to what we will be in the future together that's that's kind of the vibe i've got mm. tim any thoughts on that in terms of seeing innovation just not work or or innovation implemented in a way that doesn't perhaps match with what the principles of the church are yeah it comes uh, a lot down to the way it's communicated and the time uh, it takes for the leader to be able to do that effectively and so when yeah the leader comes in and just says oh we're going to do this now um and that's brand new to everyone else in the room then that's just a recipe for disaster mm-hmm. um and there could be other times when the leader uh will probably have maybe a leadership team whether it's paid or volunteer and they might start to explore some ideas with that group and then start to build them out but even then um, you might have a case where the leader feels like they've had a lot of consultation with their group of leaders staff or lay leaders Um, but then you need to remember that when you then even if you spent four months six months talking about this and experimenting and exploring it with your leadership team if you then come and present that to your congregation and they've got and this is the first time they've heard about it, you need to remember that this is their first time. So you need to guide them through that process as well because you may have discussed it for six months, but for them it's brand new. And so being able to uh, have that conversation in a way that takes people along with you and not they won't feel that it's dumped on them as something because um, then it will look like you're being rash where you may not be. You might have been very thoughtful, but just not communicated that yet. So I think that's going to be really key as well and you as she said you will have different people in the the church um and this is why i think that idea that um we've talked about a lot is you know, building the bridge to a new reality and continuing things as they are uh one of the other um sort of innovations you know technology obviously is a huge mm. innovation and smartphones you know would be a way which has radically changed telecommunications uh but when it was first coming in, you, it wasn't like, okay, at this point, 
uh, you cannot use your home phone anymore and everyone must get this new device. It was, yeah, there's, there's the introduction of new devices and you will have all early adopters um, and innovators who will grab that idea straight away and they'll start using it and then you'll have the, the next stage of people that will see the benefits and will start to take that on. Um, and we're now at a stage culturally where to not have a mobile phone is quite rare. You might have a few people who um, are resistant um, or just can't for whatever reason, but uh, we saw particularly with the COVID um, lockdowns and coming out of those and when you had to register at different places, like the assumption was, well, everyone's got a phone because everyone can QR code in uh, and to not have one actually put you at a disadvantage. So we've now moved from early adopters are having this, but there's still plenty of other ways to communicate with people to now, um, you know, when you, like when you fill in detailed forms for different organisations, some of them don't even ask you for a home phone now because they know so many people don't even have home mm. phones. Mm. Um, and so that kind of change has happened slowly, but you, they didn't immediately cut off the first in order to start the second. You just let that innovation gain momentum uh, and gather and so there was this building the bridge to a new reality uh, and now the new reality is the norm um, and that's been you know you've, you've done that through strong cultural change and encouragement I think you know we've talked a lot about um, Steve Jobs and Apple and the way that they communicated the iPhone and that was seen as not just communicating uh, the benefits the physical benefits of the product but identifying the the guts behind that you know the lifestyle you wanted because of it or what you know who who you were as a person and mm. there's all those kinds of things as well mm. so they bring that back in the church you're thinking about yes your theology your strategy and your practice you're not just introducing new practices but you're always driving back to those earlier things and, and grounding in those mm. yeah i think that's right and i think uh, just you mentioned um early adopters there and that, that's often used for technology um i, I think i would perhaps Use, maybe used to pull myself in an early adopter of technology. But when, if you think that you've uh, got a saying, we need to make some kind of change, um, and there is some resistance from certain people, is it important to have early adopters to that change? Because you talked about that bell curve of people, of uh, some that are really into change and some that really aren't. I would say I'm more on the end of like, I'm happy to change things. Is it important to, do you maybe perhaps focus on the change that you think is is the right way to partner with God for his church? Do you get them on board first to help ease that process? Well, I think I think the Christian life is a, a life of sanctification and growth. Mm. So I think for the individual, Christians don't, stand still they're not sedentary they're we're, we're growing um in philippians we see that we're to emulate christ's humility and to um to do that uh in one peter we see that in chapter one of one peter peter talks about the fact that the holy spirit is sanctifying us and changing us and so as individual christians we're changing and we're growing and i think that as churches we're also growing together as a as a family and so there's that spiritual growth that uh, some Christians um, may not think about too much uh, that the expression of church doesn't change week to week for many people so there's this sense of continuity which is a good thing because it's good to have uh, some continuity uh, in in expression but when we came up with 
a phrase to help us to remember what we're on about it at our church when we planted we came up with the phrase jesus changes everything because he's changing me and he's changing us and we're all in a culture that's changing as well so rather than that being a problem that we have to solve we've seen that as a good thing and so we've tried to build change into our culture and part of our dna is change so if we have a conversation about change we're hoping that it's not a threatening conversation because we're 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 open to change if Jesus is changing uh, things. So another big thing that we do is associate that with our theology, that when Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, he changed everything. And, you know, Jesus himself talked about you can't put new wine into old wineskins, you need to put new wine into new wineskins. So Christianity is new and it's a new humanity that we are a part of as Christians. And so I think that's a very exciting and vibrant and flexible um, paradigm that when it comes to how we express our faith then what flows is we're partnering with Jesus as he changes everything so if we're partnering with Jesus then all we are left to do is express our faith not build the church ourselves we express the church that he has built so uh, we we've come up with a phrase for our strategy that we share the truth and love of Jesus to everyone everywhere and it just helps us to remember that uh, as Paul says in Thessalonians that he was preaching the gospel and sharing his life with the community and so as God continues to bring in new people into the church then it's going to be constantly changing anyway because all the new parts of the body are going to help the body to grow and change. Uh, Romans 12 is really uh, helpful I think because it says don't conform to the pattern of this world but be re- be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that as we're continuing to read the Bible, we're renewing our minds and we're transforming. So church isn't sedentary. It's actually, in its very nature, dynamic. Mm -hmm. And so as culture changes, I don't fear that cultural change because we have an ongoing conversation about faith within our local churches, about how we express our faith in a changing culture. And so if we think again about this shock absorber model, we've got particularly young people who are really aware of cultural change and often adopting things quicker than other older adults. Mm. Um, we were talking earlier about a new social media app a that's just real. come yeah. out, which is Be Real, which we won't go into in heaps of detail, but it sounds terrible. But the <laughs> idea is you just post, <laughs> you post one photo a day and the app tells you when to post it. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I was listening to you guys talk about that, even though you're not, you know, young adults and teenagers you're younger than me and you've got an awareness of this new app that i didn't have an awareness of Mm. and i listen and then together we bring just naturally in conversation we bring the maturity that comes from the word of god and uh lived experience to look at that and think one of the downsides is that is it could be very anxiety inducing for young people because if you know this app's going to tell you to post something at any minute of the day you're going to be always on edge wondering when it's going to happen you know Mm. so I think there's a critique of that particular one that I've gone, well, maybe I might change my mind later if I understand it better. But at the moment, I'm like, oh, that's something to avoid. And if I'm in um, a context where I'm talking with younger people and they're sharing this new idea and I go, oh, be careful of this downside, uh, sometimes I might uh, come to realise that it's not a big downside, but sometimes they'll come to realise that it's a downside. So if the Bible is our authority... And we are the people of God and we all sit under the authority of Scripture. Then we can be constantly looking at 
new things from the lens of scripture. And so that's a safe place to look at change. It's not uh, as scary as, you know, every time the pastor reads a new book, the church structure changes because <laughs> the latest trend from America or whatever. It's, it's more about, you know, we are in our place, in our time, uh, with the timeless word of God. Jesus is our leader. He's always with us. We have the Holy Spirit. It's a very exciting dynamic uh, and empowering place to see change through that sort of a lens. Tim, what about in terms of children's ministry? Uh, that's your, your uh, uh, environment. Wheelhouse. <laughs> wheelhouse? Yeah, wheelhouse. Thank you. Um, of how uh, sometimes uh, children's ministry is really celebrated and really made a, a big part of the where the church is moving forward, but sometimes, sadly, it isn't. What, what do you see in terms of children's ministry and how do you encourage people to innovate even in children's ministry? Yeah, it's constantly, again, coming back to our theology. What do we believe about children? Um, and also, what do we believe about church? Um, and when you put those two things together, then you start to think, well, what is the best way in order to uh, disciple and mission to the youngest in our communities mm. uh, and so um, when I you know, read through the Bible I've got a really strong conviction that children can and do have faith um, that they can come to Jesus they can have real relationship with Jesus they express it differently their their words uh, will be different to our words their ability to express what they're feeling and thinking um, and experiencing is going to be limited because they have limited capacity but they are very capable of having living saving faith um, and so, therefore, when it comes to thinking about children's ministry, uh, models that sort of emphasise a, a babysitting mentality that we're just we're looking after the kids over there so that adults can get on with real church. If if that looks like if our practice looks like that, then I want to come back to our theology and say, well, no, you're actually doing a disservice to our children. Um, I'll come back to the uh, theology of church, and one of the things again that I'm quite convicted of is that the church is a body and that every part of the body is important and able to speak into each other's lives. Um, that's the whole body metaphor. Um, and Jesus' own words that children, uh, we, we look to children to see what it's like to be part of the kingdom. Um, and so unless you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Mm. Uh, and so there's a whole lot of things that that encompasses but one of the we actually need to have children in our midst to continue to be looking to them um, and this is what the shock absorber is doing is saying look down to the young people of our, gener um, our culture and watch how they're interacting with God how they're expressing faith and there is something about the childlikeness of faith in which we have complete dependence um, and so if we're not hanging around children, if they're not actually being able to speak into our congregations, if they're not having these intergenerational moments where we're able to genuinely interact with each other, uh, then again, we're not expressing theologically what's happening with church. So when it comes to practice then, in terms of innovation, uh, you can look at the history of you know, children's ministry and there's, um, I mean, it's a very long history, but we've got you know Sunday school movement. If we go back a couple hundred years and this was looking after kids, trying to teach them reading, writing, arithmetic because they're in factories um, or mines for six days a week. Um, and so th there was an attitude there of helping 
educate them, but a part of that was the spiritual and the moral education that came from a Christian society. And so Robert Rakes is really keen to make sure that they're growing up uh, knowing how they are to behave as, as Christians um, and what they are to know. And so that movement has come through. We've had um, movement from you know, the 60s and 70s, particularly um, in the youth space and then children's space where we specialise. And a lot of the specialisation was, well, removing kids um, because then we can actually teach them. And so the best version of that says, well, because children can have faith, uh, therefore, uh, the best way to teach them is to remove them from the congregation and to only give them peer time and to not interact them with the rest. Um, and what's happened in the last sort of, um, or maybe in the last 20 years, you've had family mo- family ministry, a big thing, which was, oh, we've probably taken uh, too much of discipleship of Christian family kids onto the church's responsibility when actually it was all the time it's been God's uh, planned for the parents to take that on. And so the family ministry movement was all about let's equip parents to do their God-given task of equipping and discipling their own kids. And in the last 10 years, it's probably been more of this sort of um, back to intergenerational ideas of, or well, actually what it, we've separated and siloed for so long, um, but is that God's good design? Uh, and... People, a lot of people from a lot of different angles saying, well, no, actually God's good design is for the whole body of Christ to be interacting in different ways together. Um, and so there's a number of different innovations there. Uh, but again, it's easy to sort of look at, you know, intergenerational ministry as, oh, it's the latest fad. Um, and so you can have resistors who just go, oh, it's just the latest fad. We're not going to pay any attention to that. Um, and for those, we need to communicate, well, no, no actually there's a deep, theology here um, an articulation of what the bible tells us about the best way for children to grow up in the community of faith so that they continue to take on and own the faith for themselves Um, there's a particular strategy there as well so we want to look at what the strategies are um, and in that space we can also think about what are what are studies showing us what do we know about child development um, what do we know about child psychology? How does that help us to understand why God's good design has been to include them the whole time? And we can see after the fact, oh, yeah, well, actually, there's a whole lot of social science that backs that up as well. And then our practice might look like a whole lot of different things. Um, so the resistors might say, oh, it's just a fad, we're not going to bother. Um, those who are too quick to embrace innovation for the sake of innovation might say, oh, great, let's just quickly do the practice um, let's just chuck kids all in the service and that's the best way. Um, or let's just do meals every week because that's what I've heard intergenerational churches do meals. All right, well, let's just do that yeah. without really thinking about the deep theology or strategy that's behind that as well. So either way, you can either resist change because you don't really understand it or you can embrace change but without really understanding it. The key for leaders and particularly those who are trying to make change across churches or denominations is to be able to communicate clearly, um, which is a slower work, um, but it's really important that people capture that idea so that they can actually see why we would change and then what are the skills needed to communicate that change through churches so that we can do the best for, um, yes, children's ministry, but I'd argue for the older generations as well. I think it's something that I keep uh, hearing you guys say, and I think Rainer also says in Breakout Churches, is discernment is key. And the churches that blindly chase new ideas, thinking that it would create growth, really are actually 
looking for the vision and the strategy to actually um, underpin that. Um, and instead, the churches that he saw, saw as breakout churches actually sought innovation to enhance the existing vision of the church that they already had. And he, he also used the example of some churches uh, were so desperate to find a vision, they even borrowed visions from other churches, which really doesn't fit within the context that they're in as well. Um, they, they talk about... Um, is it the tail wagging the dog or is the dog wagging the tail? And in this instance, it's saying that the dog is the vision, the VIP factor that we've talked about before, and the tail is innovation. So some churches are even just searching for where the dog is, <laughs> which, which I thought is quite a funny way to do it. Yeah. Um, and use an example of Rick Warren's purpose-driven model, which we've, we've um, discussed Rick Warren before, um, especially because of his longevity mm. and the impact that he's had through Saddleback Church. But um, some see the purpose-driven model as an innovative methodology. And looking, not looking again at the underpinning uh, philosophy behind it and just thinking that if they just adopt this purpose-driven model that Rick Warren's really popular for, then it will solve all our problems. Um, but it, yeah, that's just another example where innovation comes before the actual vision of the church. Another thing that Rainer brought up about innovation was location or facilities and, and, and new buildings. It's often like a, a very big deal and, and Rainer's... Um, Caesars of form innovation. Stu, we've uh, at Soul Revival, we've again, I've said before, we've, we've just celebrated 30 years of Soul Revival as a ministry. We've had quite a different number of venues and places mm. that we've actually done Soul Revival. Do you see moving to a different uh, place as a form of innova- innovation? Yeah, I think so. I think if you look through human history, there's lots of different uh, expressions of architecture in different cultural contexts. But also, when you look at the history of the church, you see different kinds of architecture that uh, that expresses the theological and strategic values of the Christians at the time. If you go all the way back to the early church and read Acts, you see that the early Christians uh, gathered in the temple and in people's houses as well. So sometimes people focus on the fact that there was a house church movement in the early Christian church and sometimes forget that they were also gathering in the big group in the temple as well really early on. Uh, later... Uh, during persecution, a lot, of, a lot of Christians were underground. Um, they've archaeologists have found some really interesting uh, cave churches in Turkey, where Christians have um, built their churches underground so that they can escape persecution. Uh, when Constantine uh, made Christianity the religion of the the state, so to speak, and institutionalized Christianity. Uh, my understanding is that a lot of the temples that were pagan temples were repurposed as churches. So that was an interesting dynamic. Uh, When you move forward into European history and you look at uh, different expressions of uh, architecture through history, uh, my mind goes to, you know, probably the the epoch of the medieval church design, the Gothic um, churches where there were huge cathedrals were built and it's amazing going to Europe when you go to some of these churches. You know, you go to Notre Dame or you go to England and see Westminster Abbey or York Cathedral, and they've got these towering ceilings and these this huge um, high ceilings. Um, I, I think many of our listeners and viewers may have watched some of the Queen's funeral, and there was this really interesting perspective where they had a camera right on the ceiling looking down on uh, what was happening. It was just like looking down from above. But these huge vaulted ceilings yeah. meant to draw the congregation's <coughs> eyes up that God was other and he's above us and he is holy and majestic and, you know, the big stained glass windows, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But then when you come through to the uh, 
the the Protestant Reformation, uh, particularly in England, the Protestants just went through and gutted the churches of all the statues of Mary and all the iconography and all the paintings and just painted them white. Uh, and when they built new buildings, some of the newer Protestant denominations just stripped it back completely to be just a really simple building and a pulpit. Just And that architecture really says, you know, the most important thing we do is read the Bible. So the sacraments are still part of the church, but the sacraments within the Catholic tradition of the medieval period were central uh, and there was an altar and there was, you know, stuff going on in Latin and no one really understood it. And uh, now they've stripped it back to make uh, the Bible knowable and help God to be knowable and understandable. And so when you, you know, fast forward, I don't want to you know, drag this out too long, but if you fast forward into the 20th century, uh, you've got churches that are becoming more modern. So we've got this modernist era and churches reflect that and you see the, the, the there's no longer these really high ceilings, it's just like these functional rooms. And a lot of churches in Sydney that are built in the 20th century uh, have, you know, a building for the church service and then maybe some outbuildings for Sunday schools and some um, maybe a church fellowship tea. They're multi-purpose. There's no lounges. There's just pews in the church, and then there's you know just a hall where the chairs can be stacked up on the edge. It's often very, uh, very functional, really functional. Mm-hmm. So, and it doesn't say anything about you know hang around. It's like come for an hour, let's do church, and then go home. When we started looking at the the architecture of our church, we did want to create spaces on either side of our formal service where we invite people to stick around. So we we have people come into our... Uh, we are in a factory. Uh, we rent a factory in Kirawee. With high ceilings. <laughs> yeah, well, it happens Fault to have high... Ceilings. It does happen to have high ceilings, but not, not deliberately <laughs> no, so. <that's> but <laughs> but the, uh, the idea for us is we needed... Well, not needed, but we wanted people to walk into a cafe and they walk into a place where there's chairs and tables where people can be greeted and uh, then we walk into the... The, the auditorium space together and then after the auditorium we go back into the other space and have a meal together. So our architecture reflects our um, idea that we want to preach the gospel and share our lives and we want to have some lounges and we want to have some coffee tables and we want to have some people being able to hang around as well. So that's a little innovation we've had in architecture. But I think, yeah, your architecture... And we have some rooms for... Um, kids ministry and other other bits and pieces as well uh, for stuff but yeah that's that's an interesting way of thinking about architecture it actually sort of is it flows out of your theology and your strategy of ministry Mm. so yeah if your strategy of ministry is go for an hour to church make it really professional like an event and then go home then you'll have a certain kind of building but if you want people to hang around for a bit longer to do life together, then that, that will also create different spaces. Yeah, I was um, uh, looking at breakout churches and they were talking about, um, we've already talked about the, the, the importance of the car um, in California. Mm. And they said that one of the big things was with some churches, like, we just need more parking. Mm, that's <laughs> because, right. Yeah. And but I thought, I feel like that's a, almost a, dis- a distinctly American problem because breakout churches talks about, um, is only focusing on American churches, but I thought that was a, a funny yeah, thing. Well, it's, I mean, in Sydney, we're, we're a similar situation yeah. to Los Angeles. We've got a, a lot of urban sprawl, and to be mm. honest, like we've we've found in the Sutherland Shire where we are that churches that don't have enough parking actually don't grow. Mm. So Sutherland Shire people, if they 
can't find an easy place to park, then yeah, they, they tend not to go to that church. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, so parking does give the accessibility of the church is an issue mm. as well. But uh, yeah, it's probably a bit different in America. But yeah, that we found that here too. I, I mean, again, going back to when I was in America, I always found parking very easy. So yeah. that, yeah. that was really good. <laughs> so you can understand why it's important for over there, but also it would be here as well. Um, Tim, I was just thinking about what she was talking about throughout the years of Soul Revival. Um, one thing that I remember, as, as Stu talked about a, a few seasons ago, was that when we were first starting Soul Revival, every, whatever venue it was, whatever we were using, it always ended up looking like a lounge room. Mm. And I was just interesting on your personal perspective of that. And that I don't think I realised that when I was growing up in Soul Revival of, oh, actually, the lounge rooms have really helped with discussion and sharing yeah. our lives with each other. Was that your, uh, do you think, looking back, that that contributed to a lot to your uh discipleship and even mission well yeah I, th- I think it did i mean again i don't well probably wouldn't wasn't aware of it at the mm, time yeah, but <laughs> you just turn up and of course there's a lounge room um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but w- one of the things it does uh and i you know i can now see um in retrospect that this was a purposeful decision by the leadership was that lounge rooms encourage you to stay yeah um and so it a lounge room says hang out for a long time uh, it doesn't say, you know, get the job done, be utilitarian about this time and then move on, get out. Um, and so there, there is an intentionality there. It is also one of the things we've talked about in third place theory is the levelling effect um, that certain third places have. That it doesn't matter your social status when you walk in, the actual environment um, and the culture of that group actually uh, seeks to eliminate um, the any sort of social class distinctions that might go on and so you might have you know um, someone uh, who's homeless next to a CEO uh, and they're actually just in the same space and there's a lack of ability to differentiate between those two people in a successful third place mm. um, and one of the interesting things just to go back to uh, the coffee story that I was listening to this week was that that was one of the things that they discovered um, because when coffee houses first started up, that was one of the really interesting yes. things. And particularly um, in the Arab world where coffee first started taking off in the early 1500s was before coffee houses, it was you went to people's places. Now, people's places is largely determined you only have people who are like you into your house. So mm. there's uh, sort of a structure um, that maintains class distinctions, social distinctions, those kinds of things when it's only in different houses. But coffee houses was one of the early examples of a community space where it was had this levelling effect. And so you could have all sorts of people come in and mingle uh, and that would be how you actually uh, dissolved in some way those kind of class distinctions. Um, when you all came around for and coffee was pretty cheap and so it's, it's relatively cheap but everyone is enjoying it um, and so you're creating these environments and I think that that has been a really purposeful way in which we think about architecture um, is we want in some sense for the church to be a that third place where you want to be here um, it is relaxing I don't feel like I'm being kicked out um, but uh, I can spend a long time and it has this levelling effect where uh, actually I, I don't think about class distinctions, I don't think about those things when I come in because everyone has this equal place. Um, I went and visited a church recently and they had 
uh, two morning gatherings back to back and they created this kind of morning tea space in the middle where people could hang around and have coffee and um, have some cake. But the very fact that there was a service starting after that morning tea time basically said to all those who were having morning tea, uh, look, you'd be great if you sort of hurried up. Put the pressure now, on, yeah. Um, and, and get out because we're, we're starting something else that's really important. Right. Um, of course, it wasn't said like that, but just the, the actual flow of the morning had that natural progression, whereas we've really intentionally not doubled up services at any particular time slot. Um, and when, if we do have, like Sunday morning, we have two different congregations, but they're geographically at different places. Saturday night, we have two congregations, but they're geographically different because we don't want to have that pressure. We actually intentionally want people to stick around, to hang around. Mm. Um, and that's expressing something really important about our strategy. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I know uh, <laughs> you brought up the coffee house culture, and that's always I like to bring in a sporting analogy. But <laughs> a huge um, uh, changes in the sport of football or soccer came uh, in the fifties, forties, and fifties from the coffee house culture that was in Austria and um, Hungary at the time. So it's uh, interesting that it's that's where innovation comes from is when you bring people together. Uh, Last couple of questions to wrap up this episode. Uh, as we, because we're talking about momentum in ministry, it's often, I think, we're talking a lot about it, it starts with the leaders in the church. When there's a, a way you want to move forward as a leader and you think the congregation is telling you something, and the congregation seems to be telling you something different, how do you discover God's will in those circumstances? Like You may feel like, oh, this is what God's telling me to do, but God also may be communicating with you in a different way in terms of what the congregation's saying, how do you discover God's will within that scenario where you think we need to move forward and do this for God's church, but then the congregation is perhaps telling you something different? What do you think, Stu? Yeah, well, I think the Bible's really foundational and uh, it's mm. quite common for lots of different Christian traditions to have people who have been set aside to go and study the Word of God and to spend a number of years learning the Word of God, often in the original languages that it was written, um, reading widely about uh, different ways different theologians um, come to the Word of God. And so having having leaders who are thoroughly versed in and skilled at reading the Bible is really important because having a, a leader who points the congregation back to the Bible all the time means that we have an authority and we have a, uh, a an amazing amazing gift that God has given us that his word has been um, written down and, and preserved for our generation. So I think for me, I have confidence to continue to be flexible and innovative in the context of seeking to uh, do that within the um, teaching of the word of God. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the key mm. to me. But also, oh, just quickly on that yeah, though, yeah. that also individual leaders in individual churches being accountable to other people outside right. of their church, I think, right. is also really important. So that uh, people are looking in at people's ministries and and able to comment on that as well. So that I don't think local churches should become sectarian. I think it's really important for leaders and churches to be networked, and also for leaders of congregations to have some kind of mentoring and leadership as well. So I think that's also good to have a mentor who's also uh, very fully versed in the Word of God to help uh, to make sure that 
you know, we, we get it wrong though. We're going to do things yeah. that aren't right and we'll make mistakes, but we learn from those mistakes. And I think humility coming back to a couple of episodes ago is really important that we don't have leaders who have hubris and feel like they're the, you know, the gift to the church or something. Mm. And they've got this great new idea where everyone hasn't been able to do anything properly and they're going to come along and do this great new innovation and, and it's going to change everything. I think, um, we were at a conference a, a couple of years ago and um, someone said that it's good for Christian leaders to have a humble swagger and I think I felt uncomfortable with that because I don't think we should have a swagger. I think we should just be humble. So there's a sense sometimes where leaders feel like they need to somehow project this confidence and maybe almost be tempted to uh, project a bit of uh, swagger, arrogance. Um, but I think... I think as Christians, we continue to be prayerfully coming back to God's word and it's a really awesome orientation point for us mm. to do that. Yeah, anything you want to add to that, Tim? Yeah, as soon as um, we people talk about uh, discovering God's will, the my immediate thought, and I'm not sure where this has come from, is that, oh, that means I need to go away with you know, my Bible and by myself and just wait until God speaks to me in prayer. And there is, you know, God can definitely use those times. But I think what Stu's helpfully highlighted is the balance to that is that God has made us to be communal people. We we are in, uh, we're located in churches where there are a lot of people and as you know, God reveals himself in a really democratic way, like he reveals himself to leaders in the same way he reveals himself to the newcomer and you know everyone. So it's great to be listening, um, and he's also uh, located us in this particular moment um, with two thousand years of history to think through. He provides leaders in um, denominations, outside of denominations, extra denominational, parachurch. Like there's lots of places mm-hmm. where you can get wisdom and. So I certainly don't want to um, denigrate the, the personal relationship we have with God and the ability for God to inspire us. Um, and sometimes people talk about God speaking to them. And I've, I've never had that experience, but I'm certainly not going to say it didn't happen to other people. He can work in that way if he wants to. Uh, but through prayer, through reflection, through journaling is really helpful because that gets your thoughts out onto paper. It slows your mind down mm. and helps you to articulate and analyse your own thoughts by getting an external to yourself. Yeah, I, so, love, I love journaling. Yeah. Mm. So all of those uh, solitary spiritual practices mm. are really, really helpful. Um, but we don't want to outbalance that with the fact that we have wise leadership. We have wise friendships we have people that we can actually bounce ideas out mm. and while we are innovating if we come up with a radical new idea that no one in 2000 years of church history has ever thought about um, I would be slow to um, implement that and to go oh maybe you know who God can use us in this way but if I have a radical new idea that no one in history has ever thought of <laughs> um, Perhaps, perhaps I might be the one that's a little off kilter. <laughs> you won't want to test that one. Yeah. Maybe I want to test it. Yeah, yeah. Take it to some wise leaders and to say, hey, "I've had this idea. What do you think?" Mm. Um, and so it's it, yeah. God has built us into a body for a reason. The body of the local church, the body of the mm. global church, the body of wise eldership. Um, and I think Stu was really helpful when he said, "You know, leaders need to be." accountable and so having accountability structures whatever your denominational and you know church structures are um 
having some sort of plurality of leadership and accountability is really essential. Yeah, cool. I, I think that um, uh, you ta- you're talking about there about like focusing on it's just one way of finding out what is by like searching out with God on your personal um, on a personal level. So yeah. I finally got that out. Um, and uh, Rainer has this uh, bit right at the end of this chapter where he goes a bit hard on certain leaders and I thought I'd, I'd quote it and then we can talk about it. But he's talking about something called the innovation trap and he said, those who lead churches um, were sometimes guilty of lazy leadership. They would eagerly embrace someone else's idea but they had few ideas of their own. They couldn't have pursued their own passions, encouraged the church members to pursue their ministry dreams and found the greatest needs of the community but instead they waited on the latest, the newest and the most exciting thing. They chased fads instead of pursuing God's plan for their ministry and their churches, and they found themselves soon caught in the innovation trap. So my final question is, just as an encouragement to leaders who are hopefully uh, having a good time listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. is how do we encourage our church leaders to have ideas of their own and not just fall into the innovation trap, but also hold on to the timeless message of um, God's salvation story as we've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, I could, I could just say two things quickly. Uh, one, one is one of the innovations we've tried to make uh, is to use what is uh, an idea we've learnt from Aboriginal Christians about having a feed after church. And so having dinner after church has been something we've really come to enjoy and value. It has lots of benefits. Uh, there's a lot of thinking that goes behind the meals that it's actually helping to build relationships and helping people to be servants and be a part of a family. And um, one of the interesting things I was talking to one of our staff members recently who said uh, there was a church who'd seen that we've been doing meals and then tried to do meals and found that they couldn't do it every week because it was a lot of effort. And they'd said to the staff member, oh, how, how come you guys can get it to work in your church? And it was really interesting. The staff member said, uh, we don't do meals for the sake of doing meals. We we do meals because our pastors uh, are really keen to be friends with us and that's why we do meals. And I thought that was an interesting comment because the idea of the meal came out of a desire to have an opportunity to share our lives with each other. So if there's uh, a pastor or a leader who's keen to to do life together with the people that they do church with and, and have a bit more time together, uh, then a meal makes sense. But if it's just you put the meal on and then expect it to somehow magically do something in your church, then that's putting the tail before the dog, I think. <laughs> Second thing I'd say is one thing I'm a bit concerned about in our generation today is despite, I, despite the fact that our world is changing around us a lot, I think we can be a little risk-averse. Uh, back in the 90s, I remember all the different youth ministries that I was aware of. Everyone was trying to come up with local expressions of church that were different. And there was actually a real lot of interaction between people. And it actually caused a bit of a war in youth ministry in Sydney circles where people were, their ideas were warring with each other. And I think that was a really, that had a bit of a negative effect where sometimes those discussions could could be uh, not as helpful as they could be but in general that war of ideas was creating lots of 
really new fresh expressions in Sydney and it was becoming really a creative environment that I really enjoyed being a part of but it's really interesting to me hearing some people talk about that era of the 90s in Sydney as a bit of a negative thing that there was this war in youth ministry and you know maybe that conflict shouldn't have existed because maybe it's better if we all have this set of principles that we all agree on and we'll all do the same thing but the danger of that is there's not any innovation coming out of that and having some conflict within ministry circles about ideas is actually not a bad thing. It's like really, healthy conflict. I think it's healthy, yeah. I, like I said, I'm not saying there weren't shadows to it mm. and even calling it a war in youth ministry, I've called it that too because there were <laughs> ideas you know, battling for supremacy mm. and sometimes people got a bit carried away with that. But it wasn't ego-driven as some people are looking back and saying it was. I don't think it was. I think it was a genuine desire by lots of... Gen Xers who were saying, I wonder if we can do ministry in Sydney in ways that are, you know, Sydney ministries and Australian ministries. And, you know, we, we get a lot of imported ideas from America and England in Sydney, but we, we had a generation of youth ministers who were like having the confidence to think up new ideas themselves. And some of them weren't very good, some of them were okay. But I, I am a little nervous today that we've become a little bit homogenised and we don't talk about models anymore. We just say there's principles of youth ministry and there's no models and that'll stop the conflict. But I kind of reckon that's not a bad thing to have a bunch of youth ministers sit around and have a bit of an argument with each other sometimes, as long as they're godly, so that they can strive to come up with some new things. Mm-hmm. And that approach is almost in contrast to what Rain is saying, is that, that you can't import the same principles to every single mm. Mm. Uh, church that is whatever their particular context is in, in different areas and that's why again the, the theology and strategy is really important to do first before you do the practice and yeah. and make that work okay so that makes sense so that's your encouragement is to like maybe like have some more ideas butting up against each other to, in order to mm. try and have new ideas of your own and yeah yeah so the two things there I said yeah exactly was one, the first one was don't just take a practice I was agreeing mm. with that mm. and just think that somehow that's going to change the way you do things yeah because that church seems to be working okay, so if I do that, then our church will grow. The other thing, though, is to say, well, what ideas can we come up with in our context that, mm. that might actually work for us with, with a, the same theology as all the other churches? I'm not talking about arguing about theology of ministry. I'm talking about the strategy discussions that happened in the 90s where people weren't arguing about you know, um, changing in our context. They weren't arguing about changing a reformed evangelical position. They were just talking about our expression and I think that's a healthy place to to be to argue about expression is a really good thing yeah cool Tim any encouragement for leaders to to build on build up their own ideas rather than just adopting something that they like the look of I think it comes back to what we talked about last week which was the uh low or high expectations so Rain has comment here about lazy leadership to just get encouraged by their church members' ideas and we'll just go with whichever fad is popular at the time. Um, it sounds to me like they've got low expectations of their own ministry and so That's they're not thoroughly convinced of their theology and strategy in a helpful way. Um, so we talked about the ideal last week that high expectations is you know what where the boundaries of your field are but you're also happy to play around with some freedom within that and take new ideas. So you're not being autocratic, um, but you are still providing strong leadership. And so the lazy leader does not have strong convictions of their own ministry. Mm. And so that will lend itself towards uh, just 
being blown about by the winds of different ideas and never really settling. And that can be, um, I mean, it's not particularly strong leadership, this whole idea here, but it also can be really disconcerting for your church that's constantly being taken back and forth by different ideas and there's no um, central strategy to be you know, lashed to. Uh, and so, yes, my encouragement is be convinced, be convicted of your theology um, of your strategy, um, theology. The obviously the, that's the bit that doesn't change culture mm. to culture, place to place. Um, our strategy may over different times, different places, different cultures, different languages, groups. Uh, the strategy may shift, but know why you're doing what you're doing in your context. Um, but also with the humble freedom to say, I'm not saying this is going to work in your context, um, but I know it's it's working. In mine, um, and then it expresses itself in these particular practices, um, and helping people go back through that. And so, a lot of my coaching that I do with children's ministers, they'll might come with a problem. They'll say, "Oh, that my parents are pushing back. They want more of X or less of Y." Um, and we'll chat about, "Okay, well, let's think about it. What do you believe about your theology? What do you think your strategy is? What is working well for you? Um, and does what they're suggesting feed into those? Is it a helpful refinement of something you've lost along the way? And their suggestion is going to actually help reinforce your strategy and better express your theology? Great. Well, maybe they're onto something. So let's have more of a conversation. Or is what they're suggesting fine, but not actually going to help build it? And so how do you then communicate to those parent group, student group, leadership group, how do you communicate to them with, uh, in a way that says, I've heard you, um, I really value you, and let me try and explain to you why that idea is actually going to undermine things that we hold really precious and really key to the way we do ministry here in this church. Um, and so but having that own conviction um, is really, really key. Mm, yeah, I think, yeah, I agree with Tim. I think our theology doesn't change. We don't innovate that. I think we have an openness to change our strategy, mm -hmm. but we're slow to do that because we want to have a bit of continuity with what we're trying to do. And our practice can be flexible. So if we have a strategy of sharing the truth and love of Jesus to everyone everywhere, uh, one of our gatherings might meet at night, so they do a dinner after church, and one of our gatherings might meet in the morning, on a Sunday morning and do breakfast beforehand. But there's a space created in both those expressions that looks different, yeah. mm. feels different, but it actually has is rooted in the same theology and strategy. Uh, another thing just to keep in mind too, with as we approach pr flexible practice, it's good to keep thinking that our practice is uh, often defined as discipleship or evangelism so that we don't just do one or the other because in our practice we need to be... Um, we need to be maturing Christians in Christ using the Bible and helping committed Christians to be on mission together. And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind too. I think a really good way to finish too. Thank you very much for your time today, guys. Another uh, very thought-provoking episode, episode for me. So thank you very much. Mm, um, Enjoy my time. Thanks also to our producer, Dave, who's always on the on the cans, as they like to say, <laughs> doing, doing the editing. Um, <laughs> on the cans? Yeah, because they put the, the headphones, they call oh, okay. them the cans. In right. my generation, on the cans, um, I mean, yes. drinking beers. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, I, so. I uh, immediately regretted my decision to use no, that analogy. No, I, the, I, I understand the new context of on the cans. That, yeah, it's, there's no Fosters or KBs or... 
I think it might be even four uh, X's pro- to be seen, but it might even be prior to your version of on the cans come from the fifties and sixties from the producers at the time. Anyway, I don't know. We'll we'll find out at some point. But um, if you do have any questions about cans or anything else related <laughs> to what we've talked about today, you can email us at joel at shockersorbit.com.au. And uh, as I said, thanks again to producer Dave. As always, thank you as always again to Two Man Stew. Hope you enjoy your meat tray. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I'm looking forward to lunch. <laughs> yes. And we'll finish with a one way. One way. One way. <laughs> <laughs>